You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon. The Great American Songbook is the canon of the most important and influential American popular songs and jazz standards from the early 20th century. They are songs so rooted in our 20th century consciousness that even if they are not your preferred musical choice, they are as familiar as the Star Spangled Banner. Songs by George Gershwin, Irving Berlin, Jerome Kern, Duke Ellington and Hoagie Carmichael have, for many of us, taken up permanent earworm residency. In the second act of today's show, we'll be taking a closer look at works from the canon with Pamela Ellsworth-Smith, Ruth Ann Burke and Julia Volo from Stevens College, who'll be dropping by the studio to talk about Stevens' production of The Great American Songbook, which takes place this weekend. But first things are going to get really small and we're going to shrink our world down to a one-twelfth scale. When I was a little girl, I had a dollhouse. I can't quite remember its origin story, but I have a suspicion it was my mother's. What I do remember is that at the age of six, I decided that I wanted to trade in my miniature-sized kitchen for a human-sized typewriter. For whatever reason, this was a transactional deal and I had to let something go. I don't know why it was the dollhouse. Maybe mum was tired of dusting it and she thought I should get a head start on my secretarial skills. But out went my 1930s dollhouse and in came a red plastic typewriter that I was excited about for about five minutes. I really should have kept the dollhouse. October is a national dollhouse and miniatures month and there is no one better placed in Colombia to talk about the world of miniatures than Bradley Meinke, owner of Purple Bee Emporium and the creator of fine handcrafted miniature furniture. Welcome back to the show, Bradley. Thank you for having me back. So I have spent 48 years regretting my rash exchange as a six-year-old, but it was 1971. The resurgence of dollhouses and miniatures was too far in the future and I was clearly a very unprecedented child with low ambitions. So when did the big revival in miniatures start? Well, you know, ironically, it only really started a few years after you got rid of your your dollhouse. (laughs) Uh, I would really credit uh, 1976 as a pinnacle year. The Bicentennial brought in and ushered in all kinds of different crafts from candle making to quilt making, but the art of miniatures and creating environments that went along with creating your favorite colonial period, or George Washington's Mount Vernon. For instance, I think the best thing I saw in 1976 was the White House in miniature. And I saw it here in Columbia at the old park. Uh, it was either at the Parkade Mall or Biscayne Mall. I'm sure there are some there are some other folks here in town who can remember that as well. But it made such a huge impression on me to see such a large scale miniature project. And, you know, it is still in existence. It still uh, travels to various presidential libraries. It lives in Florida as its permanent base, but uh, it's really easy to, to track down if you're interested in seeing more of it. To see the Miniature White House, go online, uh, just Google John's Weifel's Miniature White House, and you can track it down. So that was that where it all started for you? Well, not actually, no. Uh, I really credit my mother. Uh, there was a book called the Dollhouse book by Estelle Ansley Worrell, and she had written it in 1964, a year after I was born. But when I was young, uh, probably seven or eight, my mom really encouraged reading for me, uh, and we went to the library almost every Saturday. And the book I found, I tracked, I, I just stumbled upon it, just walking through the shelves, and um, it had patterns and it had descriptions of historical furniture. And she had done dollhouses for each of her daughter, and they were scaled for Barbie, which was two inches to to the foot. And so those patterns could be drafted down, but at that time I worked on a giant... I I was very indulged as a child as far as crafts went. And my mom considered, you know, as long as the door is closed and I can't see 
all the mess you are making. Go for it. And the whole thing with the dollhouse book is that, you know, a Velveeta box became a sofa. A Pringles can became a Victorian chair. So it was really rooted in the history of miniatures as far as what we we now know or now call contriving. And so it was finding found objects that could be turned into miniatures. And for many of us, there are many of, of older collections when you receive them or when you go through them that the top of a dishwashing detergent bottle is a birthday cake. Other things that could be found, everyone remembers probably the floral birthday cake candle holders. You know, those became parts of lamps or chandeliers and things like that. Junk jewelry and anything, you know, my mom was like, where did that go? You know, there were so many things that I... uh, Purloined. I, I purloined, yes, is a very good word. I kind of rifled through this and rifled through that. And, uh, you know, I was a natural snooper anyway. So digging through a drawer and finding finding some old jewelry, you know. And oftentimes I was uh, chastised for not asking first. But ultimately I was indulged. What was the first <laughs> thing you made? Do you remember? Oh, boy. The first thing I made, yes. the first thing, One of the first things I made, because I grew up in a family of needleworkers, was a very small crazy quilt, which I own. I still have in my collection. And then after that, uh, probably were some of the pieces that I had studied along. I I knew early on that I wanted, I was interested in design. And so at that time, also fashion design was an interest. And ironically, Estelle Ansley Worrell had written a book called The Doll Book, which were historical patterns scaled for Barbies. So I was able to make French costumes for Barbie, Victorian costumes for my Barbie, and and yes, I, I I remember distinctly my first Barbie was Malibu PJ. And being a little boy in a small western town, you can imagine it how well that often went over, like running errands with my mom and I'm carrying my Barbie around Princeton, Missouri. But it, it is what it is. And I survived. The love of design is still very active in my world. I think design is design, no matter what. And if you really think about it, everything in our world is designed. And so my love of history, my love of fashion, my love of miniature furniture and decorative arts all kind of culminated into what I do today. So as an adult artisan, you specialize in furniture and mm-hmm. even more specifically, furniture from a specific region and time period. Tell us what you're known for. Well, I'm known for, I am a member of the International Guild of Miniature Artisans. I am part of the class of 2017. My specialty is country or rustic furniture, 1790 to 1850 specifically. And I work from a vernacular uh, itinerant cabinet maker mindset. So I really specialize in furniture that may have been built on a plantation or done in a, a town that was influenced by a large furniture center, such as Philadelphia, New York. Often the cabinet makers in, in these small smaller towns would be influenced because there were books. The one that comes to mind is the Chippendale, the Gentleman's Cabinet Maker Guide. So these cabinet makers in these small towns would take inspirations. Maybe it's the curve of the apron of a table or the base or the legs on on a secretary or something like that would be worked into their vernacular furniture. And that is something I try and recreate in miniature. My specialty, again, are, fin- are the finishes on this furniture. I do aged and distressed painted work. I do uh, the furniture has a look of some wear and tear to it. I have been fortunate to have a really wonderful mentor who lives here in Columbia as well, Cindy Mallon. She shared with me her secrets of her finishes, and I have acquired quite a, quite a command of my finishes. I think my pieces now are known for how they look. I finish things uh, in a 360-degree manner inside and out, so my pieces can stand alone under a glass dome or on a shelf. I recently just had a collector who committed to purchase uh, one of my sleigh beds. And so I'm so excited that she's not a miniaturist, but she is a lover and collector of art here in town. And so that makes me feel really good. And, you know, the last time I was on the show, we were talking about uh, small art, big stories, and it felt really good. Some of the pieces that I had there sold. So 
doing a crossover thing of taking my craft and my art and putting it into a fine art setting is something I've strived for for a long time. Why that period? Why why so specific? And what is it about that exact style and period that fascinates you? Well, I think that the individualism and the creativeness of those people working, the decorative finishes, the decorative painting, it's colorful and it's interesting. And to me, it tells a real human interest story. When I'm working on a piece, I try and visualize that the cook maybe has rubbed her stomach against the edge of the counter for 40 or 50 years. Or the butcher on my butcher block, for instance, you know, his favorite place to do is just to stab the cleaver in the top of it and leave it there. I like to recreate blood on the top of my butcher block because if anyone owns a butcher block, you know that you've when it's actually been used, the blood turns and darkens the top of it. So, um, And I'm not a lover of pristine miniatures. In my personal collection, I have several things that are just absolutely beautiful and stunning, but I really speak to the human human interest side or the human nature side of how people use furniture. Were miniatures being made during the period that you specialize in? So are there out there antique miniatures? There are. Uh, The art and history of miniatures dates back to ancient Egypt. Many of the tombs have what you would call or, or I would really call them dioramas or small models of what the person would need in the afterlife. So if Tutankhamun needed a, a an army in his afterlife, there would be hundreds of miniature soldiers in the tomb or miniature miniature things like that, furniture and things. So yes, miniatures have existed. I would say they really date back to what we kind of know them today to the 17th century as the Dutch babies' houses. And they have miniature things. Miniature artisans for years have created and collectors, adult collectors. Uh, these were not playthings for children. They were adults collecting cabinets. And there were silver makers who made, you know, chocolate pots and things like that. And this was really in the, the Netherlands and in Holland, that region, miniature tulips, miniature brocades and things like that. Uh, if you saw the movie or read the book, The Miniaturist by Jesse Burton, there's some really good things. And that's actually based on an actual Dutch baby's house. Uh, Petronella Ortman owned that house that's in the movie and the book. I can't remember the name of the, the museum it is in, but that house is still in existence. So coming to America, I believe, you know, I think it's 1690 or so, uh, 1710, somewhere in there. I'd have to double check my dates that uh, we had a doll's house here in, in America. And so it's a hobby that goes back or dates back from really since time began. People were all fascinated with things miniature. I think I don't think there's anyone involved or Why out is there. That? Why are we fascinated with miniatures? Well, I for me, it was also, you know, it's a world I can control. Um, I think everyone, I, you know, luckily I have a, a, a great nephew who's fascinated with little things. My niece has to check his pockets all the time so it doesn't ruin her washing machine because there's rocks or shells or a shiny piece of this or that. And that's something I've always been fascinated with is that, uh, you know, doing a, artwork with found objects that we walk and find, like a little piece of plastic or something that's interesting. So I think people are fascinated because it's, you know, if you look in nature, there are so many beautiful examples of miniatures. And it's like from small flowers to the, the wing of a butterfly, we all can relate to something that's intricate and beautiful. And if it's a small scale, for many of us, it's just something that we can hold in our hand and simply have. The world of miniatures is a very delicious rabbit hole to vanish down. And I ended up this week watching fantastic little maker profiles and marveling at all the different specializations, food, decorative art, appliances, accessories, plants and flowers, and then specializations that had within them specializations like needlework and textiles, embroidery, French knots, and your category, furniture, which is endlessly subsectioned. And if you type 
miniatures into an Etsy search, it comes back with over 694,000 results. So amidst all this incredible artisanship, how do you get found? Well, I think the the fact of that has really changed. Um, I think it's important that a maker or a dealer, since I'm a dealer of fine miniatures, is that I have to reach out and create and build my own brand. And I've done that through social media. I've done that through just word of mouth. And constantly, anybody who will listen to me will hear my spiel about the world of fine arts and miniature. To me, it's something that is so important to me personally. I credit the hobby with saving my life. So I am really an adamant adamant promoter of the hobby but it has changed and something I'm doing in fact real soon is meeting with a social media specialist and reaching a newer market getting it out there to a younger a younger market via Instagram but it is the successful dealers right now unless they've been a known name for years and have had had a show promoter and they've been doing it forever I'm at that cusp I've been doing it now for a decade and so I'm just now now reaching a point where Purple Bee Emporium, I'm known for my work, I'm known for my finishes. I had a really nice comment lately on social media that they would be able to identify my work work by any picture. So that is kind of an ultimate compliment for a miniature artist. And if your work, uh, it's like any kind of designer. If you can become known for, say, like Halston was known for his simplicity and his draping or whatever on, on a dress. If I can be known for my my worn painted finishes or the blood on my butcher block. Is it real blood? No, no, it's not. I use <laughs> I use wood stain. Well, sometimes it's real blood because, you know, I'm not uh, not uh, immune to having a really sharp exacto knife blade uh, go into my the meat of my thumb. Uh, so there are some pieces that have some real life blood to them. So when you go to shows around the country and yes. you're selling your work, you're not only selling your work, you are dealing other people's work. Are you buying and selling as well? Is that kind of part of who you part are of, as a dealer? Part of my, that is part of who I am as a dealer. Purple Bee Emporium, we, we can furnish your miniature mansion from attic to cellar. And so I deal with uh, some vintage and estate pieces. I like to have art accessories that complement my furniture pieces. I think that uh, what I really strive for is to have unique and different things that, that no one has seen. So by creating clocks and lamps and things like that that will enhance uh, my own personal pieces, uh, that's real important to me. And I have collectors that really come and try and see what's new or what's the newest clock or, you know, some people. People, and that's the thing you mentioned, the subsections within subsections. There's so many of us in our collections that we have collections within our miniature collection. And, you know, for instance, I have a collection of miniature band boxes that I love or pieces of I, I love miniature pull toys. And so in one of my homes that has a miniature nursery, this lucky little girl that lives in this this particular setting, she's got like 30 pull toys to play with. And she came from a very, very good friend of mine. She is actually an antique Dresden figurine that was broken. And so we covered up her broken hand with a teddy bear. She's holding a teddy bear in the scene. So I think the beauty of the hobby is that the individualism that can come out of it and the personal joy. I try and add a sense of whimsy or just devil-may-care kind of thing. If, if polar bears live in my oriental parlor, it's fine. I, it's my own personal world. And again, it's it's a miniature world. The miniature world that I can control. It's uh, it's much like living in Gulliver's, Gulliver's land of Lilliput. It's like... I'm the giant in this world, and what I say goes. As a giant in this little tiny world, when you're making these little tiny things, do you have specific little tiny tools? I don't have tiny tools. I try and work. I was really advised by another wonderful mentor of mine that if you can build and work with the naked eye on full-size tools, when your work is examined, it's going to be even better. I really try not to magnify 
my work as I'm working on it. Of course, when setting miniature hinges that uh, that will disappear underneath my thumbnail, yes, I do use some magnifications. But for the most part, I have a lot of full-size tools that I've adapted. Filing off a screwdriver, a flathead screwdriver to be a specific size so I can chisel out the space for the hinge. Or surgical tweezers or dental tools or things like that. I have a myriad. I have a whole box full of things that have been changed to be specific specifically for me to work on a certain thing because if you're Um, if you're screwing in a tiny hinge that is so small it's like under your thumbnail i mean the screw for that tiny hinge is even smaller (laughs) right right and uh there's a secret to you know every miniaturist who works develops their secret formula mine is you know uh, a little dab of super glue and some pre-drilling before i set those nails but yes those nails are under you're right over a 16th of an inch long and the good ones aren't made anymore. So I have to uh, scour the world for backstock or for estates that have had a lot of furniture makers in them. Uh, I was very, very fortunate just this summer to acquire uh, four boxes of miniature brass. And that's, I mean, I've, I'm set for the next 20 years. <laughs> so so tell us a little bit quickly about National Dollhouse and Miniatures Month. What does it entail? Well, October is considered National Dollhouse and Miniatures Month. What I have personally done is to post on social media all 31 days. This is my fourth year of doing so. It is generally just to promote dealers and shops and things. It started back when dollhouse shops were very, very prevalent. And now brick and mortar miniature stores are, for the most part, they have disappeared greatly. And it is so hard. I have friends who have brick and mortar stores. It is their dream come true. But to get people in them, it is it is hard, uh, to say the least. So the promotion of this month really helps try and build awareness. And I think it's just one of those things, too. If we promote this hobby or miniatures, even people who aren't involved in the ho- hobby can spot things. They're in commercials. It's in films. I try and post interviews of makers. Uh, one of the people that I recently promoted on my page was the guy who designed Hogwarts. And he built the scale and he he oversaw all of the construction of the scale models for Hogwarts. And he was kind of just, I mean, he was exacting, to say the least. Were any of your works in there? No, no. I, that's that's the dream. That's the dream is to get the commission. I've, I've got several things in the works coming up, so hopefully by next year I will have you know maybe we can talk next year at length I'm hoping I'm working on things I'm constantly well not necessarily for movies I've got some great collaborations coming and I'm very very excited about that so when a younger artisan or a newer artisan is working with someone who's been in the hobby for years it's a great thing because collectors are like oh he really can do it just because I've done it since I was eight years old, the person doesn't necessarily trust my ability, which is kind of an odd, it's an odd place to be. And it's an odd hobby. Like I said, collectors, I've got so many collectors who are unique in their own right. They see me in shows in Chicago or Dallas. Uh, they're very specific about what they collect. I've got two two ladies who are the first ones in the door to a show here in St. Louis. They are the first ones to come to my table and they buy what's what's new, what I've made that's new. So this summer we had a chance to see your work in this small art big story show at the Mont Mini Gallery. But generally for people in Colombia, what, what is the chance to see your work? Well, you can uh, track me down. You can reach reach me. You can do a search. Purple Bee Emporium, you can find me. I am more than willing to to entertain and share my collection. I've often done that with, with people who have brought their granddaughters over or I've, I've uh, you know, I'm working on, I want to work on something with getting, getting in the public life library and getting something established to, you know, have an exhibit there. I'm always willing to share my collection. I think that's one of the the things that only promotes this hobby because it excites you. It's like, I wish I, I, I wish you had your 1930s dollhouse. Me I mean, too. I mean, I know you do. And, and it would be quite wonderful to see and I'm sure it was an English house and I think it was uh, one of the hinged ones that okay. you had a full yeah, front on so it so your full too. front on mm. it and yeah divided into rooms and exactly. things like that so 
I have a secret love of antique dollhouses, and people often say, it's like, oh my God, I would have thrown that away. And those are the ones I like the most. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Bradley. It you're, is always fascinating you're very talking welcome. to you. I, very, very I welcome. I have so many other things that I would like to ask you about, so we'll just have to do we'll it again. We'll just have to do it again. We'll, have to, we'll do it again. <laughs> my guest today has been Bradley Meinke, owner of Purple Bee Emporium Fine Handcrafted Miniatures. And you can find his creations on both Facebook and Etsy under Purple Bee Emporium. Thank you so much, Bradley. Thank you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be exploring The Great American Songbook with Pamela Ellsworth-Smith, Ruth Ann Burke and Julia Volo. Stay close to your radios. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. The period between 1900 and 1950 was a golden age of profusive musical productivity, with an incredible 300,000 songs receiving a copyright. Songwriters like Jerome Kern, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, George and Ira Gershwin, Harold Arlen and Hoagy Carmichael flooded the music halls and theatres of the era with their music and witty lyrics. The songs they wrote now seem so eternal that it's hard to imagine there was a time before a fine romance, anything you can do, and summertime. But it was only at the turn of the 20th century that music began to move out of private homes and into the new vaudeville and musical theatres. And these new songwriting superstars became household names. And accompanying these giants of song came a new generation of singers. Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, Doris Day, Etta James, and so many more. All of whom benefited from a new invention of the age the microphone, allowing them to croon intimately and to wrap their silky vocals around sultry lyrics. Over time, the best of these songs began to informally coagulate into a canon known as the Great American Songbook. Not an actual physical book, but songs with a sound reminiscent of the first half of the 20th century, the birth of modern cinema and this new age of song delivery. This weekend, the Great American Songbook takes to the stage at Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre, and here to tell us all about the show and delve into the history of the genre are Stevens College Associate Professor of Voice, Pamela Ellsworth-Smith, the Executive Director of the Okaboji Summer Theatre Institute, Ruth Ann Burke, and performer and future musical theatre graduate, Julia Volo. Welcome to the show, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. So today we have access to more music than ever. With a couple of keyboard taps, we can call up centuries of music from Chopin to Chance the Rapper. But in all of this greater access and endless variation, Pamela, do you think we've lost something that was so defining in the great American songbook era? Absolutely. First of all, I'm going to say how impressed I am with your research. (laughs) We're going to use you next year, probably. Yes, I do. This music is timeless. It really is timeless. And it, it feels like Shakespeare, like a musical version of Shakespeare, because there's so much depth. And as you mentioned, the witty lyrics, I think we also can hear the lyrics. <laughs> a friend of mine who is an alum of Stevens, um, we had her open our Great American Songbook in the spring, and she is um, she's delightful. And she's played with Frank Sinatra. Yes, she's up in years. Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett. And she said, you know, I think the thing that makes this music so enduring is that you can actually understand the words unlike many of our rock concerts these days. So she was um, hilarious to hear her open our show in the spring. As the ambassador for the Great American Songbook, Michael Feinstein wrote, music once occupied a very different place in American culture than it does today because it functioned as a means of bringing people together in a way that no longer seems possible. Does that ring true to you, Julia? I think so. Um, I think getting to work with these great songs, it brings all of us together backstage as well and you know in the dressing rooms all of us are humming the tunes to all of the songs within the show and I feel like it's just an incredible environment that it brings people into. How do you feel it resonates with your generation? Does it feel relevant? Yes I think it definitely does. These songs generally are about universal truths and that's something that we don't generally get in today's music often it's very like centered about one time one specific thing but these songs span hundreds of different topics and feelings and emotions and things that will still impact people today 
They have this wonderful nostalgia and they feel so romantic and it feels like it throws back to an easier time. But actually, there were two massive world wars mm-hmm. during this period. I mean, it wasn't an mm-hmm. easy time. No. Do you think these songs were in response to that? They were escapism? Yeah. I think it should be an inspiration to all of us. As you said, it was not particularly a glamorous time. World Wars, the Great Depression, um, and we saw people come together despite their differences, many times for survival. So I think that could be a real inspiration. And if I could just go back really quickly to what Julia was saying, it's been so fun for me as a director. Great lyric is a great lyric. A wonderful melody is a wonderful melody. And so it's been fun for me to watch them once we started the run-throughs get so excited not just about their song but about the other songs they're hearing so there's something there's something to that what do you love about singing the songs julia i just love the feel of them you know and getting to groove with the band is it's just it's so fun (laughs) well let's get in the mood with a little music this is at last which is going to be one of the songs in your show it's written by harry warren and matt gordon in 1941 and it's sung here by etta james Etta James singing At Last, written by Harry Warren and Matt Gordon in 1941. And it's one of the songs that will be featured in this weekend's Great American Songbook at Stevens College. Pamela, as the Associate Professor of Voice at Stevens, tell me where this body of work sits in the hierarchy of vocal skills. That's a great question. So I think we pride ourselves at Stevens to train the singer to be very versatile. And certainly we believe in a very bel canto foundation, which is really steeped in classical singing. But we teach them how to use that technique to sing various styles of music, and that will hopefully keep them more employed as they have the versatility in their voices. And to answer your question about this particular genre, it really requires that foundation of a solid technique. And then with this particular genre, it's about learning the styling of the music. Can you teach anyone to sing? Oh, gosh, how many times have I been asked that question? (laughs) Asking for a friend. (laughs) (laughs) For listening to your speaking voice, I would say absolutely. Because the same voice that you sing with is the voice that you speak with. 
And it's about breathing. I mean, a lot of singing is about where you're pushing the breath. Breathing is good. Right. <laughs> so It helps to keep you alive. <laughs> and with singing, it is about breathing, but it's about how you manage the breath. I have noticed a tendency, not necessarily with Stephen's students, but where you have young, enthusiastic singers, that, that it can veer out of belting with richness into kind of a shrillness and a screechy sound. So what is going on with the voice there? And how do you reel in the screech without losing the power? So you don't like the screech? I'm, I would please clarify no. what you mean by screech. It can, it can get a little shrill. I think sometimes mm-hmm. when you have a, oh. a slightly higher pitched mm-hmm. voice, and I think our voices tend to lower as we age. I'm sure they do for a singer too. It's, it can be a little. I understand. Yeah. So it's wincy. about it's about voice formance, and that's about vocal science, which um, you would be bored to tears um, with <laughs> pedagogy. But in essence, it's about finding a balance of space, and also finding a very forward placement to the sound so forward placement balanced with space in the pharynx and the embouchure or the mouth cavity is what creates not shrillness can I come and sit in on one of your classes? Love to have you. <laughs> I would love to. Let's do sit up a lesson. Yeah. Okay. <gasps> okay. Yes. Okay. Here we are. We have we have witnesses. And um, you talked about styling with with these songs. So, what kind of lessons can you teach from these this genre of work, the performance style? What what are you? Or Julie, maybe you want to speak to I'm that. What have you learned Julia. from <laughs> studying the Great American Songbook? I think that this style teaches a lot of control and you have to be very calm. You can't freak out when you're up there at the mic and it's just you. Um, (laughs) And I think it's been a good learning experience for a lot of the company, especially because most of our company for this production is first year students. So I think it's a great opportunity for them to step out of their comfort zone, especially if they've generally been in ensemble work, because you're very exposed. It's just you out there and it's all on you. You've got to you got to give it justice, give the music and the lyrics justice. And I think now you have a solo in the show. Yes. Tell us what you're singing. I will be singing I Get Along Without You Very Well by Hoagie Carmichael. And I listened to two or three different versions like Billie Holiday, Nina Simone, I think Frank Sinatra. That is a hard song to sing. It's um, very conversational, very emotional. Did you choose that or was it chosen for you? Tom Andes, who is our pianist music director. and music uh-huh. director, uh, he gave it to me in my vocal jazz lessons with him. And then I saw that it was going to be in the Great American Songbook. So I auditioned with the song and then was called back for it. And then Pam chose to give me that song. She's a very good storyteller. And that's perfect for that song. She knows what to do with a word, with a lyric. So you've chosen 22 songs from this immense canon of works for this weekend's concert. How do you even begin to make choices on what to include? It takes a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> We're focusing on composers. So we have a new element this time where we have a um, projected image of each composer, just a nice visual enhancement to the show. So I think about ballads versus up-tempo. I'd like people to be able to laugh every now and then. And so many of these songs were beautiful ballads, romantic ballads. I also hope in these shows that I choose some songs that maybe even if you lived near that time that you'd never heard of. So that's always nice to throw a curveball. There were a few that that I didn't know in Mm -hmm. in the list. But you have works by Gershwin, Kern, Berlin, Carmichael, Cole Porter, Harry Warren. What kind of musical journey are you taking us on in the way you structured the program? Great question. I don't know if there's any particular specific journey. Um, Certainly, I wanted to focus on some of the great composers that you've heard of and maybe throw in some that maybe are not so familiar, like Eden Abbas. Everybody knows the song Nature Boy, but I think maybe not everybody. But do they know who, how that even came about and who actually wrote and who was Eden Abbas? He was a little known, interesting person. So maybe that was more my journey of focusing not on just the greats like Gershwin and Irving Berlin, but also um, including Harry Warren is another uh, composer with his lyricist Al Dubin. You don't really hear those names, but they wrote some great songs. I am going to next play, actually, the Eden Abez song, which I think might be my favorite on the list of songs you have. This is Nature Boy, written by Eden Abaz, and it was a hit in 1948 for Nat King Cole, and it's sung here by Nat King Cole from his 1961 album, The Nat King Cole Story. 
There was a boy A very strange enchanted boy They say he wandered very far Very far Over land and sea A little shy And sad of But very wise was he And then one day A magic day he passed my way And while we spoke of many things Fools and kings This he said to me The greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. was Nature Boy, written by Eden Abbas, a hit in 1948 for Nat King Cole and sung there by Nat King Cole. It is such a beautiful song, but bizarrely, Abbas is kind of the odd one out on this list of composers you have on the list this weekend, is that he is really only known for this one song. He did write other songs, but I think this is Absolutely. the one that he's known for. How did it make the cut? What can you tell us about Eden Abbas? He was a composer, but he led a very interesting life that did not bring him into the spotlight of Tin Pan Alley composers' world. Um, He was sort of a, speaking of nature boy, he was kind of a nature boy himself. And I'm trying to remember, I think somebody got hold of the song, do you know the story? And brought it to Nat King Cole's agent, and it almost did not get heard. But a circumstance would have it, it did. And of course, the rest is history. It it is. I think it's my favorite one on the list of the schedule you have lined up for the weekend. It's haunting. It is really haunting. So another one that made the cut that seems like it comes from an era not strictly included in the classical canon is Autumn Leaves and When Autumn Goes, written by Johnny Mercer and Barry Manilow. Why is that in there? Glad you asked that question. (laughs) Autumn Leaves works for sure. But I came across this song called When October Goes. I'm like, what is that? Even I had never heard. In fact, Tom Andes had never heard When October Goes. So I looked in, I did some research, and I realized that the lyrics were written by Johnny Mercer, and he didn't finish the song before he died. And so Barry Manilow was given the rights to compose the music. And so I thought it was worth noting to slide that in there. We're doing a little medley of Autumn Leaves into When October Goes. It's just the most beautiful song, and we need to know it. We do. Now, with all these songs being reminiscent of a bygone era, tell us about the outfits that 
the singers are going to be wearing. So we have a lovely collection of vintage dresses. Uh, many of them come from our collection at Stevens. And we, compared to the show that we did in the spring, um, this is more formal. So you see many wonderful colors, satiny dresses, um, some of them floor length. And let's see what it's, oh, including the men in tuxedos. Um, we have Rob Doyen singing Come Fly With Me with two wonderful dancers working with him and let's see what else can I tell you about the costumes do they all come they all come from the collection from the wearables most collection most of them do you get Stunning. to pick your outfit Julia no um, we have two costume designers working on the show and they've chosen um, a lot of really great pieces that I think fit the bodies of all of our performers well and they chose them also based on the songs they're singing. So they did their own little, you know, research on this before making those selections. Right. So they fit to the era of mm-hmm. the song. Most of the songs are sung as solos, but you have a couple of pieces sung by the Velvetones. Yes. Tell us about the Velvetones. The Velvetones are an auditioned group of eight young women who primarily focus on most of the music they sing is from that era, and so I thought it was fitting to include them on this concert. They're doing Prelude to a Kiss by Duke Ellington and You Made Me Love You by James Monaco. I heard them sing at a fundraiser a few weeks ago, and they have such beautiful harmonies. You have such beautiful harmonies, because Julia, you're also in the Velvetones, mm-hmm. so yes. you sing your solo, and then you sing as part of the Velvetones. Yes. How mm-hmm. often do you practice to get that harmony so beautifully perfect? We have... it's technically in a class spot so we rehearse for about an hour every Monday Wednesday and Friday during the lunch hours and we often have um, events on Saturdays and things and we'll do group warm-ups together so we know our music like the back of our hand by the time we perform it. Now the Velvetones made their debut at Carnegie Hall in 2004 I'm not sure if you were here at that time but how tell us that story how did they end up being at Carnegie Hall? In fact, not only was I there, so I'm going on 27 years at Stevens. And so in my fourth year, uh, we had a women's concert choir, and I decided we need something new. So that's thus we have the Velvetones. So back to Carnegie Hall, I worked with a Grammy Award winner who wrote arrangements for Manhattan Transfer. His name is Phil Matson, And so I had an opportunity to work with him for several years, and um, he actually directed this concert series at Carnegie. It was called the Vocal Jazz Extravaganza. And so I was invited to bring my group um, through audition, but you had to receive the invitation first. And so there were about eight ensembles selected across the country to perform on this concert series. And so definitely one of the highlights of my life and the students. Oh my gosh. To walk in those halls where those great musicians and artists have been it was outstanding. So do the Velvetones, you still compete around the country as an ensemble group? We do. Um, the last journey that we took was in Nashville. We had an opportunity to perform at the Bluebird Cafe, which is a known entity for singers, songwriters. So yeah, we continue to have those projects available for them. Fantastic. Julia, did you go on that one? Have you been a, on a, in a competition nationally yet? No, not not yet. Okay. <laughs> so historically, these songs often had a big band orchestra. Now, you don't have a big band, but tell us a little bit about the musicians that you have this weekend. We have a small big band. That's where we're starting. <laughs> but where we're headed is big band, certainly. Uh, Tom Andes certainly is a known entity here in Columbia. My partner in crime in vocal jazz will... Let's just face it, he, he's the glue that keeps all this together. I create the mess, and then I say, here, make this happen. And he is a genius at doing that. Um, we have an outstanding string bass player. Actually, we have two. One is playing Saturday night, and the other is playing Friday and Sunday. And then at the, our wonderful drummer is Rusty Elder, who is one of our music faculty at Stevens. And you had a similar concert back in the spring. It was at Leela Rainywood Hall, but mm-hmm. this time you've moved the concert to the Mecklenburg Theatre. Why, why the move? I think to broaden the scope on many different levels for the students, for the community. For me as director, it's been wonderful to have a production crew to take care of the lighting, the costuming, the technical aspect. So it's it's been a journey for me because I've had the luxury of having, you know, a production staff where I don't have to do everything. So it's been great. 
Do you see the Great American Songbook becoming a tradition and being an annual event at Stevens? I think we're on to something, yes. You had a big turnout in the spring? With very little promotion, there were over 200 people that attended. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. My second act guests today have been Stevens College's Associate Professor of Voice, Pamela Ellsworth-Smith, Theatre Business Manager, Ruth Ann Burke, and Performer, Julia Volo. Stevens College's production of The Great American Songbook opens at 7.30 tonight at the Mecklenburg Theatre with additional performances at 7.30 tomorrow night and a final matinee at 2pm on Sunday. Tickets for the show are just $10 and you can get these by emailing boxoffice at stevens.edu or giving them a call on 573-876-7199. And we have a little Andrew's Sisters playing the Lullaby of Broadway, which will be the closing song at this weekend's performances. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. And babies don't sleep tight until the dawn. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up. They would like to find their way onto your calendars. After a jam-packed few days last week, this week feels like it has just a little bit of a lull to it. That said, this is opening weekend at Columbia Entertainment Company for the musical Dreamgirls, which follows the struggles and successes of a fictional black female R&B group, The Dreams, amidst the radical social change of the 1960s and 70s. Showtime is 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. Tickets are $14 and the show continues for three weekends. At Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre this weekend, they are performing songs from the Great American Songbook. There were just three chances to catch the concert tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 in a final matinee on Sunday at 2 and tickets are $10. Pace Youth Theatre are at Talking Horse Theatre this weekend with their production of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Performances are tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets will be available on the door. In Macon it is opening weekend for the comedy thriller Death Trap. There are two matinees tomorrow and Sunday as well as an evening performance at 7.30 on Saturday and tickets start at $24. And at Whitmore Recycling Hall tonight. Guest trombone artist Corey Mixdorf plays recent music for trombone at 7.30. Admission to the concert is free of charge. At Skylark Bookshop, they are trying something new on Saturday evening with a ticketed murder mystery event to celebrate the publication of a new novel called In the Hall with the Knife by author Diana Peterfreund. As guests will be solving the mystery in pairs, tickets cost $50 for two people and include food, drink and a copy of the book. The event is from 8 or 9, but there are very limited tickets available and you need to reserve your place ahead of time with Skylark Bookshop. Sunday evening, the Blue Note is hosting the Midmo Rock Awards with 40 bands across the rock and metal genres receiving awards in 15 different categories. Like the Grammys, only local. The evening gets underway at 7pm and tickets are $7. On Monday evening the annual Peden Literary Prize Reading and Reception will be at All Street Studios at 6.30, honouring Carolyn Ogburn, winner of the 2019 Peden Prize for the winning story, Ordinary Time. The event includes a brief reading by the author, plus hors d'oeuvres and drinks, and it's free and open to the public. On Wednesday evening, the King's Singers will be at Jesse Hall as part of the University Concert Series season. Tickets for their concert start at $25 and the show starts at 7. At Ragtag Cinema, their annual Passport Series continues next Wednesday and Thursday, celebrating new international cinema from different parts of the world. This week's film is from Argentina and is called Rojo. The film starts at 6.30 both evenings. And Blue Note, the Blue Note next week, uh, their Brew and View film is, of course, the Rocky Horror Picture. Show. Showtime is 9 p.m. $10 gets you in and costumes are welcomed. Next Thursday, Stevens College holds the first of its Bach's Lunch Student Recital Series at 12.30 at Historic Senior Recital Hall. The concert is free, but you have to bring your own box lunch. It is also opening night for the University of Missouri Theatre Department's big musical of the fall season, The Wiz, which will be staged at the Rheinsberger Theatre. Evening performances are at 7.30 and the show will run for two weekends and we will be talking to the director of the show Joy Powell on next week's Speaking of the Arts. 
And finally, at Rose Music Hall on Halloween night next Thursday, Loose Loose and Violet and the Undercurrents are on stage for their tight, tight fright night. The evening starts at nine and $7 gets you into the party. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia. Thank you.